0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast, episode number 122 with Tim Musso, really great relevant conversation exploring masculinity, uh, sexual harassment, sexual violence, uh, and focusing a bit on the college setting, but also just uh, sort of about this work at large. So uh, really appreciate Tim's time and all that he shared. Uh, there's some great resources to check out in these show notes uh, as usual. So please do uh, take a quick gander down there. Uh, but also we have uh, some awesome sales coming up this month. The first one starting today in our merch store, which you can also find in the description, the show notes uh, for this episode. Uh, so definitely go uh, grab some cool stuff. It helps support the show. Uh, and It's a great sale, so you'll uh, save some money too. So uh, with all of that and without further ado, this is episode number 122 with Tim Musso. Well, I'm uh, very happy that we are giving some time here for this episode to a very important topic that unfortunately continues to be uh, relevant and grabbing headlines of uh, masculinity and how it intersects with uh, sexual harassment, sexual violence, appreciative of the time and the space that we're uh, getting today again and uh, you, Tim, for uh, sharing uh, your experience and your expertise in this area. But uh, we'll go ahead and just dive in, get started, Uh, start off as we always do. Uh, If you want to introduce yourself and uh, give a brief overview of your professional journey, how you got to be where you are today, and then we'll uh, dive into the topic.
1: Absolutely. And thanks for having me, Dustin. I know um, my name is Tim Mousseau, and to kind of just jump right in, I am a i'm a male survivor of sexual violence and for me that is kind of frames a lot of the way i approach the conversation and my perspective on it and why i talk on the issue i got my start in higher education working at the university of new mexico and at the time i was working at what was called the mentoring institute and so we were designing these peer mentor programs for first generation students and Uh, I was working my master's in organizational leadership. And I thought in my world that that's what I was going to do. I was going to study leadership, work in leadership programs. Everything was great. And then after a number of experiences and, and encounters and interactions, I started to open up more about my experience as a survivor and to talk a little more openly about what it meant to be a survivor of sexual violence. And it kind of would eke through in conversations with friends or, you know, in public settings. And finally, I, I started to publish a little more publicly about what it was like for me as a survivor. And I saw a lot of really good and positive reactions to it of all of a sudden I published this one major blog and a lot of people read it. I had a lot of people reaching out and being like, this was really helpful because I've never heard another survivor from a male identified perspective talk about some of these things. And so at the time when I published that blog, finally, I moved on from University of New Mexico and I was working, hired adjacent with the North American Interfraternity Conference doing, again, leadership programs and all that kind of work. But finally, I kind of had to make this decision of do I want to focus on leadership? Or is there something more? And I'd already been speaking and presenting at a number of conferences. And I kind of I met the president of the current speaking agency that I still work with Campus Speak. And David was just really supportive and said, hey, you have a really powerful voice and a very powerful story. Have you ever thought about just doing this full time? And so for seven years now, I've really spent time just talking full-time professionally. And as time has gone on, I've moved from just doing keynotes and workshops and breakouts to actually doing more consulting, spending longer time with a number of my clients and campuses, and really trying to implement, whether it's programs or initiatives that are really focusing on changing cultures as we approach these topics, just because I know there's only so much I can do showing up. For a few hours or a few days at a time to speak versus the amount of change we can see when we actually implement curriculum or use the proper assessment around the issue.
0: Well, and I guess a quick follow up to your professional journey since you've been uh, speaking and consulting and, thing, you know, in the space over the span of several years, have you sensed, I guess, just like what I would perceive, or, you know, I'm sure many would just from like kind of watching the news and everything, like a cultural shift. And I guess just the acceptance of talking about these things, because it's a super nuanced topic and obviously very like emotionally charged to the people who have gone through uh, these experiences and everything. But like, have you just sensed any sort of change over the span of those several years? This is just something I'm curious about.
1: Absolutely. And it's, it was both fascinating as well as devastating, because I think that when I first started talking on it, there was a large cultural acceptance of we need to have these conversations. And I believe that society as a whole really had this perspective at that time of believe survivors, we need to hear these voices, we need to be having these difficult conversations and talking about the topic because it is impacting so many people. And there was, I think, just so much media that was coming out, there was a number of books that were being published. It was kind of this really, I think for many people in the public sphere, the first identification of this is this kind of endemic issue. Mm-hmm. And then I would say the the reversal of that was you know, in 2016 with the election. And all of a sudden, I think from Trump's election to also the Kavanaugh trials, that's the first time I started to notice a number of shifts in regards to a lot more combativeness from even within my own audiences and people being willing to push back and challenge on what were commonly accepted points and um, a little bit of almost disdain for the topic. And I think there was starting to see this kind of Uh, backlash on the topic, which was really hard to watch because you feel like we made all this progress and we made all these changes, and then to see that really go the the other direction. And I think now we're starting to see some of that return shift, especially over the last year, and as we continue to talk about survivors and the role that we can play in supporting them and the role our communities can play around the issue. I think we're starting to see that shift in the other direction again, Um, but I think time will tell a little of whether how that comes and where that goes.
0: Right. Well, and I think it's just something I perceive um, as I just feel like I'm paying more attention is that with certain cultural uh, shifts in these social issues, like they will be given an opportunity to speak their piece and maybe push for some change. And, you know, perhaps some change does kind of tangibly happen, but it does like, you know, certainly when it's like kind of hitting some momentum and a stride, there's certainly that ingrained status quo that is kind of, uh, like you said, kind of pushing against, because in my head, that's sort of these people being like, all right, enough's enough. You've been like kind of disrupting things and sort of, you know, uncovering these hard truths that have been existing and just being ignored for so long. Like people kind of push back because yeah, it's tough. It's hard conversations and hard truths to realize, but they're necessary. And this has been long overdue. So um, yeah, it is fascinating kind of this pendulum swinging back and forth and everything. And um, I think certainly like a big piece of all of this, I think it's just this, You know, capital M. You know, like masculinity. Like it's just this big hanging piece. I think in this conversation of how it shows up in terms of uh, one, certainly, like you, uh, you know, how you kind of came over time to be uh, feeling more comfortable and confident and empowered to share your story. But then certainly, the prevalence of perpetrators of a lot of sexual harassment and everything um, certainly are men, and there's masculinity wrapped up in what men, men think they are uh, entitled to, or, you know, how they think they're supposed to act and, uh, all of that. So we'll start with a very broad question because I I feel like that's maybe part of the issue is just like how we define masculinity. So I'm curious in your work and how you speak about it and, you know, work with people, how do you define masculinity?
1: Whenever I look at masculinity, I think that the kind of high level view of there's this idea of, um, we're seeing the, the traits and the values, the characteristics that we traditionally associate with people that we were defining as men, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. really a salient point that still continues to push through in the, the work we're doing right now. For me, the place I break it down a little further is I think of masculinity on both the systemic level as well as the individual level. And I think it's really important to talk with masculine and male-identified audiences around that because I think so many people, when, when you talk about masculinity, they get caught up on this personal experience. And they'll always, I hear these stories from men who will talk about, well, I, I define masculinity with these beautiful terms. And they think the values for them is they'll talk about courage and kindness and compassion. And oftentimes they have these beautiful stories to tell. And it's helping them realize, yes, we define and we view and we perceive masculinity on an individual level, those traits and values that we have experienced in our own life through our the role models and the people around us. And it's trying to help them push past that to look at the systemic side of things of saying, yes, masculinity exists in the vacuum of you, in the vacuum of your community, but it's also being influenced and shaped and built by the communities that you're a part of and the communities that you're not a part of. And it's trying to push through into there of helping them realize you can have a beautiful personal definition of masculinity, but how is this impacting others? And how is your masculinity as well as general definitions of masculinity being forced upon others? Because I think one of the biggest things we're seeing is that it's, it's still a fairly new concept. Masculinity as a whole has only been recently starting to be studied in depth. And too often, especially when we consider those traditional values of masculinity, it's very rigid. And I think that's the hardest thing is there's so much rigidity around it that a lot of people feel that anytime we're challenging or critiquing masculinity, they they clamp up and they say, well, this is the way it's been. And this is this is something that's never personally hurt me. And so we have to stick with this. And I think there's that rigidity that really defines a lot of masculinity because the other thing I would say around it it's so often the way that society has traditionally viewed masculinity is through the lens of a negative i'm not saying that masculinity is inherently bad but more so the way we've always defined masculinity is in this idea of i am masculine because i am not this um and so many people don't think about that but oftentimes growing up to now the way we're socialized around masculinity is I am masculine because I'm not feminine. I am masculine because I'm not weak. I am masculine because I am not doing all of these things. And that is just a very damaging viewpoint to have and to base an entire system of beliefs around of you are masculine because you are not.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's really well put just all of that because it's, yeah, there's just a, it's so much in it because I think it's just the idea of like almost breaking down someone's concept of reality on like kind of that more systemic level, just like, Oh yeah. Like when it comes to like a family and like who does what and all that, like that's like almost like society is structured around these, you know, uh, concepts of, uh, masculinity and everything. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot to process. And I think, you know, again, it ties into the idea of, uh, sexual violence, sexual harassment, and, uh, all of that. And, you know, it's, uh, like you said, a lot that's kind of captured headlines in terms of, uh, uh, the previous administration and, uh, all that happened within that. And, you know, everything that was leading up to it and again, still grabbing headlines, uh, now as of the recording of this, but, um, I guess just to, you know, put a finer point on it, like what makes it so relevant to the work that you do, uh, that focuses on, uh, educating people about, uh, sexual violence.
1: I know you shared kind of a brief point of data earlier, but what we know is around 90% of incidents of sexual violence involve men, Um, regardless of the gender of the survivor, 90% of incidents involve men. And so for me, the two intertwine very heavily in that if we're looking at preventing sexual violence, we have to be having conversations around the masculine systems that allow it to happen. Um, Because... The flip side of that is we know that less than 6% of men would willfully engage in acts of sexual violence if they were given the opportunity. That's some of the best data we have around it. And so, so often when I talk with, especially male-identified audiences around this, is trying to help them reconcile, you don't need to be defensive. Hearing those statistics doesn't mean that you're doing it or you're the one perpetrating this, but the systems that empower us, the systems that have been traditionally built for men, are oftentimes the ones that are allowing this to occur and to happen. And I think that it's, it's getting people to wrap their head around that idea of even if you're not deliberately engaging in these actions, how are you fighting against systems that are allowing these actions to occur? How are you challenging norms that are rationalizing these behaviors or dismissing the voice of survivors? Because so I think there's there's that. A large amount of pushback that oftentimes comes when I talk about the the male role in preventing sexual violence, and because I the other thing is I know that men can experience sexual violence. I'm a survivor myself. The the individual who assaulted me was also a man, and so I I'm very aware of that. And I think it's it's still helping people understand that yes, men are survivors, but even then there's certain privileges that I benefit from as a man. That there are things that in my experience change the way that I still view sexual violence. Right, like I was. I was assaulted in my college years, and I still have a variety of privileges as a man that I don't have to think about the way I'm engaging with the world in certain capacities. Um, It's still different for me. And so it's, it's kind of acknowledging that, yes, men can be survivors. Yes, men are experiencing this. Yes, it's a devastating thing. But we still have to reconcile how we are normalizing it, perpetrating it. At least allowing these systems to exist. Of it's kind of, are we not only trying to make sure that the people around us are safe, but we're also dismantling things that are making people unsafe? Because we're still seeing sexual, we are seeing decreases in sexual violence, right? So we know since the the nineteen nineties, the more we've talked about this, the more we've had conversations around it, the more we've addressed it, we have seen incidents of sexual violence decrease anywhere from fifty to sixty percent. Um, so the more we talk about it, the more we know that societal shifts are happening. And I think that's part of why we have to have these conversations and always constantly transfer the conversations down to, how is this relevant to us? Because as we talked about, I think there's a lot of major stories that we see. There's big things that hit the headlines and the news, and it's easy to be like, oh, well, society is changing, right? So with Me Too, we oftentimes hear people talk about, well, there's definitely changes because we see all these public-facing personas being held accountable for their actions. Well, in the reverse of that, we also see that now... You know, one third of organizations are requiring, requiring their workers to ha- to sign NDAs. So it's kind of like mm. we have workplaces where people are speaking up, but more organizations are also stopping their people from speaking up. And so it's always that kind of side of like, yes, we're talking about this publicly, but what are we doing on that local level to try and make those changes and make sure that it's not just like, well, look what's happening publicly. Here's how we're changing it individually.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think like. Yeah, cause I guess that's just how things often go is that you see very public, you know, sort of signs of progress and people can kind of like, you know, oh, that's like wipe our hands clean, like work's done, like we can move on or something. But, you know, it's more nuanced than that. It's more complex than that. Like change takes a long time to really uh, take hold and sort of like just be... um kind of solidified and not be temporal. Cause again, I mean, we were just talking about that before of kind of this pendulum swinging back and forth and, you know, it really takes a concerted, consistent, uh, you know, sustained effort from people to, um, you know, bend the arc of uh, society towards, you know, progress and uh, justice and everything. But, um, cause yeah, I mean, I think that is the idea is I think there's, you know, that kind of alarmism, that anxiety from organizations about like, wow, people are more, you know, comfortable and empowered to speak up. Like if they do, that could be, you know, just like negatively impactful for us. So yeah, they're trying to like have these NDAs in place and stem that, uh, which you know, it's just everybody kind of acting in their own self interest. Like they'd probably have some robust training in their, you know, onboarding process, but at the same time have people sign NDA. So I guess I almost want to spend a little bit more time there. Just like, you know, that juxtaposition of like uh you know, on one hand, because uh, it kind of gets to my next question, sort of higher ed setting, because I think, you know, higher ed institutions are very yeah. uh, liability focused, understandably so. But um, so they want to try to do their due diligence to work to educate, but also I'm sure are struggling with, you know, it does seem like sometimes like continually changing guidances and uh, policies and things from the federal level. So um, we can kind of start there as we like approach this work, like in the higher ed setting of like, you know, um you know, those kind of competing priorities of uh, wanting to educate and advocate and all that, but also trying to like, I don't know, manage this like sort of moving target of like, uh, I don't know, just like having uh, the institution be protected. Like, I don't know how that kind of maybe shows up in your work in the higher ed space of like the openness to have uh, uh, these conversations and how like complaints and things are are handled and that's kind of a kind of a big question but i feel like my mind is just swirling with all these things but now we we can start i think to focus i guess just in like the higher ed setting and you know we'll spend a little bit of time here
1: yeah and so higher ed wise i would say a lot of it comes down to focusing on making sure the culture reinforces the message because i i I understand the need to follow compliance and I get compliance. I think the weirdest thing for me about compliance is that compliance and policies only matter as much as your institutional culture really matters because I think sometimes sexual violence prevention, sexual harassment training a lot of times fails because it puts the onus on the individual. And it says, Mm. if you as the student, if you as the professional, if you see something, say something. If something wrong is going on, challenge it. And yes, absolutely. If harm is happening, we have to challenge that harm. But there always has to be a deeper dive of why is this harm allowed to happen in our culture, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of people speaking out about the harm in our culture. We should be gracious when we hear the harm in our cultures that are occurring because it allows us to address it as long as we're willing to actually look at the rooted systems that are allowing that harm to occur. We shouldn't be afraid of it because compliance is fine, so long as the culture reinforces that compliance. So, for example, I've worked with a number of institutions where students don't necessarily trust the Title IX office or they don't feel like the Title IX office serves as a resource. Now, I think sometimes that's an issue of they have a misunderstanding or they're not fully aware of what Title IX does or how it interacts or how long a process can take. And I understand the frustration of you know, the Department of Education continues to change regulations and the last batch of regulations that were rolled out were really not supportive of survivors. So I I get that frustration across the board. But sometimes I, I think when I work with campuses, one of the first things I tell them is, how are you training your students on Title IX? Is it a, you know, cut and paste program that is going through policies and putting an entire policy on a slide and just reading them off? And is that what you're doing? Because that's not necessarily always giving them an idea of how to support you or how you can support them and, you know, how they can utilize your services. So sometimes it's it's investigating the way we're talking about our services. Another prime example is like counseling centers. So I know a lot of times when I speak with institutions and I'm brought in to talk with audiences, one of the things that is plugged a lot is we have this counseling center that exists on campus. And if you need support during the program, after the program, they are there for you. Well, then when I talk to students, what students share is, hey, there's a limit on how many sessions I can use at the counseling center. Not only is there a limit, there's also a wait list. So if Mm -hmm. I need counseling, it's going to take me, X number of weeks to get in. Um, Not only that, but there's only three counselors and none of them share identities that I hold. And so I feel really uncomfortable talking with them and having that conversation with them. And I know that kind of goes into the deeper degree of like, how are we funding things and what our resources are and our availability for resources are. But I think sometimes we just have to look at the institution we're building up and saying, is this matching the public facing statements that we're making and is this matching the way that we're talking about this and are we just doing some of the work to kind of investigate how much our culture actually reinforces or negates the policies that we put in place. Cause it's good to have those policies, but we have to really look at like the ways that we're talking about, it, the ways we're training on it, the ways we're guiding people towards these resources um, and making sure that we're we're truly showing and being supportive when we're doing that. And it's not just kind of lip service and it's not just like one, one size fits all um, as well. Because I think that's the other thing is sometimes we have this one size fits all approach and that's because sexual violence is so nuanced and so varied and everyone has different experiences um it's really hard to put a one size fits all approach to addressing sexual violence. And so trying to bring as much humanity and nuance into it. Um, and then with that, the other thing I would say is understanding that knowing different populations need different things, as we are training on these topics and leading educational sessions and conversations on it, how can we tweak the work that we're doing to really fit the needs of our students, right? So I always look at it in ideally the way that a first year student is addressing conversations of consent and relationship building and all of those pieces should be different than the way a third or fourth year student is looking at the same issues because they are different developmental places and they've received different degrees of training. But so often if we're funneling everyone into these same buckets, we're going to really miss the mark on there might be skills that some of our older students may not have that we could be teaching them, or they may just get bored and they may feel like, I just constantly have to repeat the same training and I'm not actually learning anything. So I'm not actually picking apart the nuance of the issue. Because I do think students are engaged and they want to learn about this topic as long as we're really approaching them and kind of sometimes saying, hey, what would you like to learn and how can we tailor this to your concerns? Because it is going to make it much more interesting and engaging for them.
0: Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, because I like just the idea of like the culture piece and, and ways that that manifests is certainly, uh, yeah, the way that you're talking uh, with students, for example, you know, like when uh, institutions bringing in. Uh, speaker and those sort of things, who's going to be you know well equipped to have uh, I'm sure a variety of conversations and I guess just to confirm I mean maybe my understanding or how I'm like sort of imagining this like would you say that then like it would be good to have you know because it seems like sometimes like institutions will have maybe just one of these things uh, but it, it sounds to me it would be important to kind of have a. Uh, kind of more complex and kind of mixed bag approach of like, like uh, some sort of like asynchronous module that you go through at your own pace, maybe some speaker that speaks to everybody on a broader uh, topic, and then smaller, uh, more intimate conversations that, you know, perhaps, again, it get, gets into like kind of tailing around what uh, questions particular students might have and to have those discussions. So uh, and then, I mean, also with that, it seems like more sustained things kind of throughout a student's experience. Uh, versus just, you know, sometimes it's like just a thing that happens in orientation and then never again. So um, how do you see it maybe just kind of like structurally, you know, sort of a strategy of educating students on this topic? How do you you see that maybe like taking shape?
1: I think it's tiering it throughout the years, right? So I think it's looking at um, what are the different touch points where we might be able to meet with and engage with students. How can we integrate this into their daily life? You know, so when we look at and consider just prevention campaigns, um, it is almost very rare that you have, you hear someone go through one module that says, here's all this information and that actually produces change. Um, For meaningful prevention in any form, we have to have so much so many touch points of different pieces of education, whether it's marketing and posters, whether it's videos that they can watch, whether it's training they can sit through, whether it's sessions from outside speakers, or as you mentioned, peer-led education. Um, I'm seeing a lot of effectiveness with peer-to-peer education. And I think especially in the past year, one thing I've seen that's really effective is lessening the amount of time that we're requiring students to go through this. And so instead of saying, hey, we need to have you come together for an hour and a half long training session, can we design peer-to-peer curriculum that might be easy to facilitate 10 minutes before their next student organization meeting or at the beginning of a first year seminar? Um, Instead of saying like, hey, we need to actually have you come to a place on your schedule, can we try and work with our faculty and staff to maybe create assignments around this matter that is is asking people to critique it, right? So if you're working with like the communication school and looking at partnering with, if you have a school of journalism, how can we work with them to say, let's let's maybe have an assignment where we critique the way the media covers stories of sexual violence and how we can be more ethical as potential journalists in this field, you know? So just thinking creatively of what are the ways that we can get this information In front of students and not only rely on the hour-long training approach and giving the power to them Um, you know i think a lot of times when i see hour and hour and a half long trainings that happen just during orientation and something i try and avoid and something I always try and tailor is how specific can we get with the examples? Because a lot of times when I work with a campus, I'll ask them like, what are the issues that you actually are facing on your climate survey? Because there's times where I might work at a campus and they're like, Hey, we see a lot of issue with dating violence, domestic violence, intimate partner violence. And my reaction is, well, yeah, let's tweak then the examples we're using, um, the resources we're plugging, the ways we're pulling into this. And with peer education, the nice thing is, is if you can train a group of peer facilitators to do this, it allows them sometimes to give them the autonomy to say, "Hey, make these examples your own." Here's some ground rules of how you're going to leave this module, or how you're going to leave this little bit of content, or the information that you have to include from a compliance and policy-based perspective. I get that, but allowing them to say, like, if you have an example that isn't, you know, throwing anyone under the bus, but if you have an example that feels relevant and you know you can make up and create and say, like, this is something I know my peers are going through, that's going to have a lot more impact within that group and that community because they feel like they might recognize it 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 kind of connects with them of like oh this is this is true and this is authentic and this is us and so i think sometimes it's it's looking for all those different touch points right i've seen a lot of campuses do really cool things of You know, I know one campus that does Instagram Live every Monday, and they spend about 30 minutes talking about masculinity and sexual violence prevention. And it's a really phenomenal thing because if you want to join, you can join. And if you, you don't, you can watch the recording later. But it's a really low impact thing of like asking the students. It doesn't take a lot of their time to engage with it. And it doesn't take a lot of time for the staff to coordinate it. It's not this kind of elaborate training program, but it's really having an impact or thinking about like, what videos are you recording, right? So I saw another campus where they got a variety of individuals on that campus from different resources, and each of them recorded a video And then they put those videos all throughout social media. The videos were no longer, no more than two to three minutes. And then at the end of it, they had a panel discussion through um, virtual program where all of those experts came together and they screened and moderated questions, kind of like just talked about the issue. And so I think it's, it's what ways can we get this information in front of our students at a variety of places and also thinking less of like, can we bring them in for another training? And can we also just make this that you're seeing this information in a way that's relevant to you in all of these different areas?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's just really great. I mean, it's tangible examples for people to kind of uh, take away and think about of how they could uh, apply that in their own context. And I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. I mean, because all within that, you know, with it being peer leaders or just it feeling um, more kind of personalized to the context of whatever institution, whatever students uh, are kind of facing, it's just feels like you're kind of getting at like just more human, you know, like it feels as though it's just uh, not this like, yeah, rote, government policy kind of uh, bureaucratic sort of thing um, that you know is this overarching guidance but it's like all right well let's bring this down to earth and let's like really kind of dig in with it and talk about it in a human way um, in a way that just feels more relevant and um, i think that's a really great advice and um certainly maybe just kind of navigating this space like because i think we got a lot of good like tangible things that people can do but i'm just imagining too again this can be very you know, draining and tough and just confusing, kind of disorienting work of trying to navigate these guidances and policies, or just uh, kind of trying to be uh, kind of dynamic and responsive to what's coming up on uh, folks' campuses. But any other advice they would give to hired pros, just kind of navigating this topic and, you know, trying to uh, educate their students to the best of their ability?
1: One of the things I always recommend as a good starting point is, try and do as much assessment as possible, right? It doesn't need to be formalized, even if it's informal. I think anytime you're hosting a program or an event or a initiative, ask for feedback. Um, And just try and talk with the people who attended of, hey, what did you like about this? What was engaging? Was there content that was missing for you or topics that would be more interesting and engaging for you? And I think it's sometimes going directly to populations to talk with them about it. Um, I, even for all the work I do, have not kind of figured out the perfect way of getting sometimes male-identified populations to engage on the topic. It can be very hard, especially with specific groups, to get them to show up. And one of the best ways I've always tried to remedy that is just directly approaching the people that I wish were in my sessions and asking them outright, what would make this engaging for you? Um, Hey, we have to talk about sexual violence prevention. We have to talk about Title IX. That's going to happen. So how are we going to make this more engaging? And how are we going to make this more relevant towards you and your population and your peers? Because I think sometimes we there's so much there's so many ways you can address sexual violence prevention. There's so many different facets of this topic. And so I think when we can when we can go directly to the people we're trying to impact and figure out from them, here's where the gaps in our knowledge are, or here's where the gaps in our knowledge are that are really important and that we want to learn about, it can give us the power of saying, hey, look, I know we spoke a, you know, a few months ago, and I talked with your student organization, and you said you don't understand X, Y, and Z thing about consent. We have this training coming up, we have this speaker coming up, we have this guest panel around this, we would love if you would be a part of it, we think it's really relevant to your organization. Um, That's one thing I think is really helpful. Another I would say is, try and always kind of simplify the training you're doing, generally we know because there's so much I think nuance and you know sometimes we feel like we only have students for a little bit of time around the sensitive topic I see a lot of times we're throwing so much information at them and I don't think they can fully absorb everything because we're trying to ask them to know and understand everything of this critical issue and so just thinking about can I simplify this and if you're running a prevention campaign or you're setting up a series of marketing promotions or events can you make it around like for these three months, we're going to focus on really bystander intervention, or we're going to focus really heavily on the complexities of consent, or we're going to focus really heavily on you know intimate partner and dating violence kind of thing. Um, because I think when we make it simple, it's much easier to get people engaged in the topic because they don't feel like they're being overwhelmed. And I think a lot of times when I talk to students, they're like, I've heard so much. I know this is an issue. I know it's a problem, but I'm never leaving programs with a clear idea of like what I can do around it or how to stop it. Um, And then the last thing I would say is sometimes think about ways that you can try and make it positive. Um, It's a serious topic. We need to treat it with a serious degree, but especially the last year has been so hard from a mental health perspective. And I think people are just exhausted that like, there were a few partners I worked with where we just did simple tweaks to their language of saying, as opposed to talking about like intimate partner or dating violence, we couched the program under the name of like, what does it mean to be in a healthy virtual relationship? And we were still addressing sexual violence prevention, and um, we were still addressing issues of violence in relationships. But just that simple tweak of changing the title to focus on healthy relationships. Led to some really profound conversations because people were just like, oh, this is going to be a positive conversation. Right. And again, you still have the mm-hmm. seriousness, but it's just a, it's just that kind of like the way our mind is kind of like, man, I'm exhausted. So I would love to go to something that seems a little healthy and we, we're still going to have a serious conversation around it. But it's just that, that shift in marketing can kind of change some of the engagement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice as well. Cause I think, cause I guess it's almost the idea. Yeah. Like it's some people are, yeah, are just going to, Kind of a knee jerk reaction to just something, you know, like the headline, just the title of something, but it's like, yeah, I think we could all agree that we'd love to have healthier interpersonal relationships, you know? And it's just like, yeah, I'd love to hear what's talked about there. And, um, you know, certain things are kind of just going to be generally applicable to a lot of different contexts. But, uh, again, they're, they're serious and relevant and important conversations and whatever we can do to get more people, uh, to get kind of sitting down and, uh, gauging with it is, uh, certainly, Uh, Certainly good. So um, I guess, again, sort of on the advice piece, you know, we always love to get any resources, uh, things that you would like to give a shout out to that we can include in the show note that are uh, relevant to this topic.
1: Yeah, there's a number of books I found really helpful on this. Um, First one is called Sexual Citizens, a Landmark Study of Sex, Power and Assault on Campus. Um, And that one came out recently. And I think it does a really good job of looking at The current kind of state of sexual violence prevention and how we're talking about it. And it's a very great research piece um, that I really love. Um, For the Love of Men is another book that kind of gives a high level intro to masculinity. And that's by Liz Plank. And it kind of approaches, I think, from a very realistic way of how a lot of men, especially, are viewing and talking about the topic. And I think it gives a good idea of this is how. Men are having this conversation. And another one is The Descent of Man by Grayson Perry. That's a really good one that talks a little bit about masculinity from someone who I think has been in the conversation a little longer and has a a unique perspective that's not as similar with some people who cling to traditional ideas of masculinity. And then another book I found really fascinating recently is called Can't Even How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Um, Mm. And I think it's just fascinating with the trends we're seeing economically and just gives an idea of it doesn't cover sexual violence or masculinity, but it really just talks about like why people are exhausted and why we're stressed and some of the struggles that our students are facing and our, our peers and our, our coworkers are facing of just like the ways that kind of in a capitalistic society, we're like, why we're so burned out and why this can feel so hard. Um, and then organizations, a call to men um, is a really good organization that talks about uh masculinity in general. And I think does a lot of great work with especially younger men, but has some phenomenal resources. Is constantly doing re- webinars, is very relevant in that regard. One in Six is a organization that supports male-identified survivors of sexual violence and does a lot of work for that population. And then the Joyful Heart Foundation supports all survivors of sexual violence and has a number of resources on there as well. Um, that I think are really good to just kind of provide to survivors or can answer some questions about how to address and help and support survivors.
0: Yeah. Those sound like great resources. And uh, yeah, I've been kind of curious about that um, for the love of men books. I follow uh, the author on social media and follow them for a while. They always kind of uh, bring it up. So you know, I'll check that one out. Um, have that, uh the burnout generation one too. Um, just uh anytime like something keeps coming up, I'm like, oh, all right, all right, I gotta, I gotta, yeah.
1: out, I, think. <laughs> I feel um, the same way. She's yeah.
0: trying to tell me something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the idea too. Obviously people can kind of do their homework with that stuff and, um, certainly, yeah, I mean, it's been a hard year, but I think as we're coming out of this, hopefully folks can, um, you know, come at this work kind of re-energized and, uh, knowledgeable and, Um, Obviously, we've got some great advice and tips uh, from this episode. But um, as we wrap everything up, we like to kind of just give the opportunity for any final thoughts, calls to action on this topic.
1: Yeah, I think uh, a big call to action is don't be afraid to approach resistant populations. Um, I get it. There's there's certain there's just I think talking about sexual violence prevention, especially from a with male identified populations can feel very difficult. Um, And sometimes when you're in those settings, it there's times I'm profoundly surprised and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And there's other times where I'm like, this is a conversation that feels like it should have happened 20 years ago. Um, And (laughs) as hard as that is, I think sometimes just being willing to sit down and kind of create a groundwork of like, Hey, we're not going to let you stay here if you have these kind of negative or um, damaging beliefs, we're not going to like, okay, that and we're not going to rationalize or normalize those. But sometimes it's, it's necessary to hear those things in order to understand your populations and to try and figure out how to challenge them on it, and how to offer them support and resources. And that can be very difficult. Um, the other thing I would just say that I always try and reinforce is take care of yourself. Um, There's so many people who are doing sexual violence prevention work, and I understand as a survivor how personally passionate I can be about this, where it feels like you have to do it all the time, and it feels like it can become a very quick part of your identity, and when you're constantly working with supporting survivors and working around sexual violence prevention, it can feel very difficult, Um, but just remember to take care of yourself and know that uh, there's a lot of people who will offer help, and you're not alone in this, no matter how isolating it might feel.
0: Beautiful sentiment to end on. Definitely agree uh comes up a lot i think when we talk about these kind of topics of just making sure that we uh, are able to stay committed and keep uh, fighting the good fight and i just thank you so much tim for uh, taking the time out to talk about all that you did and share all that you did and uh, so many great resources and we'll have ways to uh connect with you and your work and everything that you mentioned in the show notes as usual but uh yeah just thanks again so much for your time
1: absolutely yeah thanks dustin thanks for having me
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast.